Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, our podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner. With me, Eason. And me, Bex. And today we're bringing you the last of the episodes of The Tally Ho that will be covering the main 17 episodes of the original Prisoner TV show. Yes, and it's our third episode talking about the season finale fallout because we just can't stop talking about it, apparently. (laughs) So hopefully uh, you've had a chance to listen to our main discussion about that, although it was was quite a long episode. (laughs) Uh, uh, And then we followed that up with the episode The Fallout from Fallout Part 1, which invited guests uh, from previous episodes of the Tally Ho podcast to come back and tell us what they thought about the episode and also their sort of general thoughts on the show as a whole, especially in light of how Fallout seems to turn some of the ideas that the prisoner presents kind of on its head and the impact maybe that the show has had on them in the longer term as well. And this time what we wanted to do was throw the podcast open to some of our listeners to talk about their ideas about Fallout and also about the show, what it means to them. We've been getting messages on social media, via the website, via email, um, and we've got some really interesting ideas to run through that people have sent in. We thought it would be a good opportunity for prisoner fans to discuss their own interpretations about the show and and talk about what it means to them. Yeah, and I think over the course of the uh, many months we've been doing the Tally Ho podcast, we've said it several times, but it's been really fun to talk about the show and interact with so many people who are watching along with us. I think that interaction with the listeners that has kind of made the Tally Ho podcast quite a fun experience for us to put together as well. And so it's our chance to open up the podcast to uh, you, the listeners, who have been supporting it for such a long time. So we're going to get cracking in a moment. But before we do, uh, if you've enjoyed the Tally Ho, then please do take a minute to rate and review us on any of the podcast apps that you get the podcast from, whether it's iTunes or an app on your phone, because it really does help the podcast to get some reviews out there so that people can find us and know what we're all about. And also, if you haven't subscribed yet, you can do that again via iTunes or however you get the podcast. And this is not the end of our coverage of The Prisoner, nor is it the end of the Tally Ho podcast. The podcast itself will continue into the new year and it will be talking all things The Prisoner and Patrick McGowan. But it will be opening itself up more over the year to discussing several other aspects of cult TV and film from that era. The kinds of shows that we think have been uh, influential on us as well and maybe have shaped our TV viewing habits over the years as well uh, because we've spent a lot of time doing these episodes learning a lot about other shows and maybe rediscovering them properly and I think we'll be revisiting other shows other films and things that we hope people who've enjoyed the tally ho might also like to get into or maybe have already watched and want to uh, discuss with us as well in the coming months. Yeah so we've got Lots of plans. I think some of the shows that we're going to cover will be very familiar to people. Others we hope are hidden gems that maybe people haven't encountered before. But we hope it's going to be fun. And of course, we're still going to be talking about lots of aspects of Prisoner. There's lots of other Prisoner-related media that we're going to be getting into as well. And uh, I think we're going to be dipping in and out of Patrick McGowan's own catalogue of film and TV as well. So it does mean that uh, you'll probably find that if you subscribe to us on the Time for Cakes and Ale stream, there'll be not only Tally Ho podcasts, uh, which have taken up a lot of our sort of bandwidth over the last uh, year or so, (laughs) but we're also going to be going back to our main podcast, which is Time for Cakes and Ale. 
and also our Twin Peaks podcast, Cherry Pie and Coffee. And all three podcasts will all be accessible via the Time for Cakes and Ale stream. So if you do subscribe to the podcast, you'll be able to see which episodes are coming up by just checking the titles on them. And they'll all be uh, labelled as either Time for Cakes and Ale, The Tally Ho, or Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee. Yep, and you can follow us on Twitter at TFCAA or find us on our Facebook page, Time for Cakes and Ale, to keep up to date and find out all about the new episodes that are coming out. We'll be posting everything up when it comes. But the best thing to do is subscribe and then you'll get every new episode as it comes out and you can just check which one it is and which ones you want to listen to. But now we're going to crack on with the episode. We're turning the Tally Ho podcast over to our wonderful listeners for the Fallout from Fallout Part 2. So we crave your indulgence for a short while. The uh, transfer of ultimate power requires some tedious ceremony and perhaps you would care to uh, observe the preliminaries from the... Chair of Honour. So first up, we have a piece via Twitter from Christopher Dodd, and this is what he sent us. In my teenage years, when I first saw it, the show was supportive and reassuring at a time when conforming at school was everything, to fit in as it were, and I didn't do to a certain extent. As the judge says, you're on your own, and I was. But the prisoner somehow placed a hand on my shoulder and I was born all over. Then through adult life it's always been there for me as a source of gaining perspective on how and why society works the way it does. Conforming is certainly the much easier option, but can have such dangerous consequences for the world. I remember when I first saw Fallout in the 1980s, I felt totally satisfied the series ended in the right way, the only way it could. My only disappointment being that it didn't start a revolution in television. Just like number six shouting to be heard, sometimes it doesn't matter how powerful the message is if the audience are already programmed to keep their ears firmly covered. The individual was at the heart of the episode, how society deals with such people, whatever their age or position, and that absolute freedom can never truly be achieved living in this world. So what did it teach me? You can have freedom to a certain degree, but unless you completely detach yourself from society then your freedom is to a large extent an illusion. Live in the dream of freedom, but just don't wake up. You may be shocked as to how shackled you really are. Today, you only have to look around the streets and waiting rooms to see people staring blankly at their smartphones constantly. This always reminds me of the people drones we saw in the prisoner hospital with their goggles on. And who would have thought we wouldn't have needed CCTV everywhere to monitor the population? We've got it via everyone carrying a smartphone. Perhaps we've all become part of the village and we never even realised it. In 1991 at Manchester Polytechnic, I did my dissertation on the prisoner for my humanities and social studies course. It got good marks, but I can't remember anything about it now and unfortunately don't have a copy. But I'm the only person I know who did this on a UK degree course. I also got married in Port Marion and I have a remembrance plaque in the grounds honouring my late father who died in 2012. Your podcast has been illuminating. Your episodic guide and detailed analysis has made me think differently about the show for the first time in a long time, in a good way. Be seeing you. Thank you, Chris, for sending that in. Um, thank you for the lovely comments about the podcast. And thank you for some really insightful, very personal perspectives on what the show has uh, has meant to you and actually how it's kind of stayed with you over such a long time from when you first saw it. I think something that does come through when we've spoken to people is that it it really is a show which has shaped them in some way. 
and been something which has never really been matched on TV, for example. And so it remains very unique and very fresh and certainly very relevant now. Yeah, it's something that's come up a few times, isn't it? This this idea that the show is something that can be a comfort if you feel that there's just something not quite right with the world or with you in the world mm. or or with how you perceive yourself in the world, that it's not... I suppose it's it's not unusual that lots of other people feel that way too. And it, you know, although The Prisoner is in some ways a very sort of personal expression of Patrick McGowan, I think it taps into something that a lot of people feel. And when you have those kind of feelings expressed in this way, particularly Fallout being as abstract as it is in a way, it's a canvas that everyone looks at and interprets differently. And I think that's part of its strength as a season finale. Um, I also really love the connection between smartphones and the people in the hospital. And that mm-hmm. is that weird purple corridor, isn't yeah. it, where he looks through and everyone's sitting there with the goggles on and they're sort of waving their toes around. You know, it was a very prescient show. And in some ways, when we discuss The Prisoner episode by episode, we do treat it in a very literal sense. You know, we discuss the events that are happening scene by scene. But I think a real strength of the prisoner is the fact that you can take the whole thing as allegory that comes up in our lives again and again and again. And it's ever more relevant. You know, you don't have to be a fan of the show, I think, to understand its importance when you watch an episode of it and you see what's going on in the world at the moment. But also that personal nature I think is really important as well because on one hand it's a very personal show for Patrick McGowan I think and how he put it together and what he was trying to say but the themes can be very universal and it's it's interesting that we can tap into it as a interpretation of Patrick McGowan's but also we can read it as something that's very relevant to ourselves as well. And the the other thing that strikes me is how people are drawn to Port Marion as a place when the prisoner means so much to them. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who will obviously travel there for their festivals and things, but just just going there and being there and it being a part of your life in a way, as a connection to a show, it's unique in that respect. I don't think there's any other show where you can go to a place that has that connection and and it can be part of your holiday or your wedding or or whatever it is that you want to do confirm contact priority contact priority so this next piece is from joseph dickerson who got in touch with us on twitter And this is actually an extract from a blog post on his website uh, where he writes extensively about The Prisoner. And we're going to have links to all of these things on the site for you to follow. One thing I love about The Prisoner is how it resets viewers' expectations at almost every turn. Think that the hero will win? No. Think that the show will follow conventional narratives? Uh, no. Think that the bad guy will be revealed in typical James Bond spy fashion, like finally seeing Blofeld and You Only Live Twice? Well... As many reading this may know, the reaction of viewers when this episode was first aired in the UK was 
let's just use the word unhappy as a catch-all. People were pissed off. McGowan was assaulted on the street by viewers the month following the episode's airing. I can only imagine what was screamed at him during the incident. What was all that? You call that an ending? What the hell did it mean? Quite a lot, actually, and McGowan famously never tried to explain to anyone for the rest of his days on Earth, though he did use one phrase in describing number one that is descriptive in its simplicity. Number six's alter ego. That, in the end, is what I think is the point of all of it. That the rebels ultimately become the leaders, and that individuals are drawn ultimately to become members of the collective, often to lead them. Lead us, show us the way, the judge says in the finale, playing to the ego we see on display in so many episodes before. McGowan accepts, and then rejects, violently, which in turn brings us back to square one. The last shot of the series is the same as one of the first shots of the series, McGowan driving his car through a desert, defiant and about to resign again. And so it goes, forever. You accepted. I rejected. You accepted before you rejected. Dialogue from Once Upon a Time. The independent man rebels, conforms, and then rebels again, because he needs society as much as society needs him. As much as he resists, he eventually conforms, but sometimes it is not without a fight. The lone wolf belongs in the wilderness. Number two, Once Upon a Time. Who is number one? Well, it's McGowan, the free man who became the leader of the very thing he rebelled against, the establishment. The power of control was too tempting, so he accepted, then he rejected. Like a Mobius strip, the show folds into its own self. He was rebelling against his own ego, his own prison, all the time. The ego of self. I. The being we observed through all 17 of these episodes was a leader, and we all crave leadership. That is the secret of the village, that to some extent all of us want someone to take charge and be in control. It's easier than being responsible to your own self. Being free comes with its own burdens. If you fail, no one helps you. You are all alone. Wouldn't it be easier if someone took care of things for you? That is what the village represented. That is what many people want our world government to provide. That is what I'm afraid we have become. Children who want someone else to take control for us. So we can enjoy our bread and circuses, read our cheesy novels like Twilight, watch American Idol, a world where we can have all of our needs attended to, like healthcare, for example. So, what's it all about? McGowan in Arrival. What does it mean? Well, it means what it is, as McGowan stated in the episode Chimes of Big Ben. It's an epic of imagination and a singular vision, a series that spoke to the need of individuals to be individual, no matter what the consequences. It is a series that in alternating episodes rejects violence and then embraces it as a necessary part of the revolution. It is a show that will be remembered and referenced decades from now, unlike the recent AMC remake. It is, like all art, it needs to be interpreted and understood on its own merit. Is the Mona Lisa smiling? And why? We bring our own answer. And my answer to what the prisoner means is as legitimate as anyone who approaches the series with any degree of seriousness. So did he escape? Yes and no. But as McGowan is no longer with us, we can at least say with some degree of confidence that he's on parole. Be seeing you. Yeah, I think that's a really nicely written piece. I think there's a couple of really interesting things to pick up on there. The first is the dual nature of number six and number one, of you know number one being number six's alter ego, maybe the potential to become part of the establishment and lead the establishment rather than rebelling against it that maybe all revolutionaries have that potential within them 
And indeed, some revolutionaries do then end up becoming the tyrant after a revolution. Yeah, I think it you know really speaks to the very complex nature of number six that I think only becomes crystallized in the finale when he is faced with number one. And to be faced with yourself, I think, is probably the most harrowing experience, I think. And the fact that everything you've maybe been rebelling against is something of your own creation, I think, creates this complex conflict within yourself that maybe is enough to break the character of number six in order to necessitate the need to cycle through the events again. Almost like the the moment of realisation is what is so profound that it causes the end of the end of the village but ultimately a series of events that uh, after a return to london triggers the series to begin again and i think what i love about joseph's piece as well is it really talks to that cyclical nature of uh, of the show and how i think not just within the world of the prisoner but actually as a television show you can keep going back to it and start at the beginning reach the end and i think it was rick who maybe said it in his piece in the fallout from fallout part one that you can get to the end and then immediately you can go back to arrival and start watching the show again yeah and the other interesting point is a reference to you know people becoming like children who want somebody else to take care of everything for them because this is something that i think fiona has talked about and indeed it's um discussed in the fallout guide as well by fiona and alan the parent-child imagery that's constantly present in the village. I mean, obviously, you had it most profoundly in Once Upon a Time where you literally have somebody growing up from infanthood Mm. and trying to be shaped by the authority figures in their life. But it's frequent throughout the prison, all the nursery rhymes, the the sort of colourful clothing and... It, the the bold primary colours, it's almost nursery-like in that way. But I think that is a theme that is present from the very beginning of the show. Yeah, and even the uh, the fact that in Fallout itself you have very clear discussions about about the generational gaps and, and conflicts, triggers for how society itself is constantly in flux, and that that sort of unpredictable nature of it, which could be broadly categorised as, you know, as the, as the unpredictable nature of individuals rather than people who are all part of the same collective. You know, it's that uncertainty which the village is trying to suppress. I think, yeah, one aspect of it is, is very much that, that fear of the, of the next generation not conforming or falling into line with how the current generation does things. Give it to me, baby. Confess. Oh, Dad, I'm your baby, Dad. Yo, your baby something, Daddy. Confess. The bones is yours, Dad. They came from you, my Daddy. Confess. So next, we have some comments from Kevin from the band Flames of the Lizardbirds, who got in touch via Twitter. Hello, this is Kev from the band Flames of the Lizardbirds. <laughs> I very much enjoyed your podcast and going back through the world of the prisoner. About Fallout, when the prisoner is sitting on the blue throne, he does not have many lines. He is alert and watching events unfold. In a way, he becomes like us, the viewer, sitting in our chairs watching the episode. 
It puts us in his shoes more than ever before. Every time I watch Fallout, I feel like that, looking for details within details. Like parts of Twin Peaks, there is a sense of dread mixed with dark comedy that washes over you. The character of the prisoner is a rebel, an individual with a strong sense of awareness. Fallout may raise many questions and have a bittersweet ending, implying we, slash the prisoner, will never be free from prisons made by others, or even sometimes ourselves. It is still a win. They have not broken him. He has not fallen into temptation. He remains aware. Be seeing you. Thank you, Kev. I love that. I think this this idea that we become, as the audience, the equivalent of uh, number six sitting on the throne, just watching events play out. I think that's a really, um, a really clever observation, just because certainly towards the end of the episode, there's not much dialogue in it. But even up front, there's like everything seems like it's filled with deeper symbolic meaning. You have to kind of keep your eye on everything in order, I think, to get the full experience of Fallout. And yet, even when your job is just to have a full view of everything, you still know that there are things happening that you don't fully understand. And every time you rewatch it, um, it's really clear that there are details that you can keep finding again and again and again, and ways of interpreting things, ways of putting the pieces together. And those moments when number six does speak in the episode to make these very short statements on on what's going on, but never really providing a personal perspective on them. The whole thing is framed like, like it is for the audience, which is, you know, we are presented with these events and we are left to interpret them. And arguably as everything falls falls down at the end and the and you know the village is destroyed you know we're left to contemplate what we've seen and what it means and you never really have chance to make sense of it fully because as it ends it's not a conclusion because it goes back to the beginning again yes and as our listeners will know we do love twin peaks so i just wanted to pick up on the parallels here um when he talks about the the similar sense of dread mixed with dark comedy. And, and obviously, looking at the original season of Twin Peaks, so not the, the return that came back last year, but comparing the two finales, where both are shows which had had you know, some deeply surreal and unsettling elements to them that then went all out in the finale in a way that is utterly confusing. And I'm literally just now thinking about that comment and thinking about the fact that, uh, mild spoilers for the finale of Twin Peaks from 27 years ago, that in that episode, Agent Cooper spends a lot of time sitting in a chair not saying very much while Hmm. weird things happen. Um, uh, And the fact that they're both at times so funny and so disturbing. Um, I think that's a lovely connection. Yeah, almost like Fallout is essentially number six in the Red Room at the end. Yeah, yeah. And trapped in that kind of purgatorial state. Mm. And ultimately his exit is is one that turns the whole series on its head as well. And also it's an interesting take to view the ending as essentially a win for the prisoner 
that he didn't get broken by the village and he didn't get tempted into leading them when they offered it and that he remained self-aware and also aware of what was going on around him that even though you have this cyclical uh, narrative that seems to be going on it's still a victory in the sense that that's the only victory that you can hope for maybe is to remain yourself and to remain aware of what's going on around you that, that you can't win a greater battle against the universe but you can win that battle within yourself So the next piece is from Thomas, who sent us some comments on Twitter. Hello there. Since I'm not much of a writer, and you already did such a thorough job of discussing the metaphors, symbolism and possible meanings of Fallout, I will stick to my own experience with The Prisoner. I discovered The Prisoner through an obscure movie forum in the late 90s. It seemed intriguing, and I put it in my mental notes to check it out sometime. Years later, when I stumbled on a DVD set of The Prisoner, I was finally able to dive into a series I knew nothing about. I had a big affinity for the Avengers, Emma Peel era of course, and expected something similar, a silly and strange spy action show, but it turned out to be so much more than that. I must admit the first viewing of the series left me a little confused, in a good way, and when a lot of years later I happily rolled from your Twin Peaks episodes into The Prisoner again, I couldn't be more thrilled for a more in-depth rewatch. In a couple of ways, the final episode resonates for me with what I admire about the Twin Peaks Season 2 and Season 3 finales, as well as the final episode of Neon Genesis Evangelion. It deconstructs the fabric of the world, takes a deep dive into the protagonist's mind, and takes us to a new, undiscovered place filled with more questions and possibilities. Also, this time, knowing more about Patrick McGowan, his role in creating the series, and knowing how much it meant for him, it also added to my appreciation of The Prisoner. I postponed watching interviews with him until I did a full rewatch, and I find him to be a very inspiring and strong-minded guy, albeit probably annoying and stubborn. <laughs> a true original. I also discovered my father used to watch the show as a kid when it aired in the Netherlands, and he was thrilled to see it again, this time in glorious HD, and not to mention colour. And to be fair, if it was not for your podcast, that probably wouldn't have happened. I'm looking forward to more Fallout talk in the coming episodes, and curious what is next to come. Be seeing you, Thomas. I think that's awesome. I I think it's brilliant that people have watched the show again and gone back to it in order to, well, join in the podcast, really. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's kind of why we were doing it, really. Also, we discussed it very early on in the Tally Ho run. It's one of those shows that people discover at different times, through different means. And, you know, I love this anecdote about hearing about it on, on like an internet forum at some point and then finally seeing it years later going into it, thinking it might be one thing, but not only being surprised that it, it wasn't you know, an Avengers-style show, but actually finding out it was something more and different and something that you can go into fresh and be completely wound by, and it does stick with you. And the fact that you kind of want to watch the episodes but not know too much about it, to see these 17 before you 
maybe go back and explore some of the material that surrounds the prisoner or the interviews with McGowan that don't necessarily tell you what the prisoner means, but they shed light on the creative mind behind it. And I think the 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 fact that number six and McGowan are so strongly linked, you can you can learn a lot about what some of the intentions of the show may be by reading and watching some of these McGowan interviews. And so the fact that you can have layers of appreciation of the show that are growing out of sort of the extended media that exists around the show and the things you can find out, um, I think that's a really nice, nice way of looking at it. It's funny because I also was a big Avengers fan before I got into The Prisoner. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a progression that a lot of people go through because the, the Avengers is probably the most famous of those cult 60s British shows, um, probably because of the style, because of Emma Peel, because of the music and the clothes and everything. You know, it, it, it works in a, a a wonderful artistic way, but I find that it's it's comforting in a very different way to the prisoner in in that it's it's never disconcerting the avengers you know you can be in a certain mood to watch the avengers and then in a certain mood to watch the prisoner which that they're almost polar opposites in the way they treat authority and the intentions of authority which i find really fascinating that they both sprang from the same era and they're both famous for their style and yet they can have such different approaches and, and both be so funny and entertaining at the same time. And again, more connections with Twin Peaks. Uh, I'm not familiar with Neon Genesis Evangelion, but that's something that we're going to have to check out. <laughs> <laughs> because if there's connections to The Prisoner and Twin Peaks, then brilliant, we're going to watch it. And to pick up on uh, one small point that Thomas made as well, uh, just to reiterate this, it is wonderful to watch the show in the new HD versions, mm. which are just beautiful to watch. And I think it's nice also to know that the show will be forever preserved in this format for years to come. Sir, on behalf of us all, we thank you. And now I take it that you are prepared to meet uh, number one. Follow me, if you would be so kind, sir. So next up, we have uh, some comments from Michael Pomerantz, who dropped us an email. I first watched Fallout in the mid-80s when it aired on my local PBS. I was in my mid-teens. I knew the ITC title image from Space 1999, a show I liked very much. My family and I had watched the whole series up to that point, and I was excited to finally learn who ran the village. Now, having watched the whole series numerous times, including in connection to your amazing podcast, I think that particular question, who runs the village, is what Fallout is about. The answer to that question is not so easy, as evidenced by a 300-minute podcast I listened to recently. (laughs) But I do feel that question, along with its synonymous twin, who is number one, is the central subject of Fallout, as opposed to why did you resign, or where is the village, or is number six John Drake? Even as a teenager, I found the ending immensely satisfying. 
I found it to be a critique of sides, us versus them, east versus west, USA, USSR, old, young, black, white. The show became a unifying theory of individuality for me, a remedy to stop seeing the world only as a series of dichotomies and constant conflict. I made all my friends watch the whole series. My family recorded all 17 episodes on VHS at super slow speed. There were five or six episodes squeezed onto a tape and the quality was terrible. Nevertheless, I took them with me to university in 1990 and promptly made all those new friends watch it. I was meeting some more musically diverse folks then and they were glad to know what Iron Maiden had got the idea. My thinking on Fallout has evolved a bit as I've grown older. Today I think more about the authenticity and sincerity and the power of the individual. I think a lot about McGoon's genius and what it cost him to tell this story. Somehow it's heartbreaking and inspirational at the same time. The same could be said for much of life. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Um, it's really nice to kind of hear this kind of perspective where it's about sort of that feeling of watching the show the experience of seeing it for the first time and then wanting to share it with other people. And I think that's one very interesting thing about The Prisoner. I mean, a lot of people have heard of the show, but it's surprising how many people actually haven't had the chance to watch it. And I think it's a show which over, you know, 50 odd years, it still exists today largely because of word of mouth. People watch it and they want to tell people about it and make them watch it too. It's that feeling of being not only part of the shared experience of, of enjoying something like this, but to see if other people get different things from it as well, because you know that it's an important show and you kind of want to see how people you know, I think, react to it and whether they enjoy it, how they respond to it, what their thoughts are. It's a very provocative thing to watch. And I think that's an important aspect of, uh, of watching The Prisoner and sharing it with other people. Yeah, it's been really interesting getting perspectives on The Prisoner and on Fallout from people overseas because obviously we come to it with one set of cultural baggage, if you like, and the perspective that people may have had on it at the time that they watched it or at the time it was broadcast is going to change depending on the culture in which they were experiencing it. And I think it's interesting to hear about the us versus them aspect from someone who was watching in the US, particularly in the 80s when, I mean, I was very young at that point, but even I can remember the frostiness, can we put it, between USA and USSR relations at that time from a distance of several thousand miles away of, of being in either of those cultures. So, so I, I love that take on it, that question of, you know, whose side are you on and are the sides actually all that different um, I think that's something that number two talks about in uh, the times of Big Ben about you know one day the two sides will look in the mirror and realize that they're looking at each other you know but also I I love is is bringing back so many memories of things that I used to tape on VHS when they were on TV because if you didn't you never knew when you were ever going to be able to watch them again you know, now we take it for granted that everything comes out on DVD, is on streaming services, is on catch-up. If you didn't watch it, there are a million ways to watch it, um, legally or illegally, however you want. But it's it's an experience that is almost, or 
is eventually going to die out. That experience of taping something and thinking, yes, I've got a copy of it now, I can actually rewatch it whenever I want. And of that being something exciting, something that you couldn't do for every show. You know, you had you had X amount of tape space and how many episodes could you squeeze onto a tape if you did it on long play instead of short mm-hmm. play? That brings back so many memories for me and um and also that sense of going to university for the first time and trying to share all the things that you love with other people. Um it's I hadn't really thought about it before that there must be some people who have come to the prisoner via Iron Maiden rather than <laughs> vice versa. <laughs> but that's fantastic. Confess. And a hip bone. Confess. And a thigh bone. Confess. Shin bone, knee bone. Confess. Back bone, all yours, dad. Confess. And this next one is from Jason, who dropped us a line on Twitter. Hello from JRC in the US. It's hard for me to sum up what Fallout is about. But to me, an important aspect to focus on are the four escapees. It isn't just number six who gets away, but a quartet. 48, 2, 6, and the butler. As laid out in the episode... 48, 6, and 2 represent three different kinds of people who continually rebel against their place in society. 48 is just a free spirit. 6 is self-righteous and impossible to work with. 2 feels entitled to authority and power over others. The butler lives only to serve. At the very end of the episode, there's cross-cutting between the three numbers that shouldn't be there if the story is only about number 6. So instead of just 6 getting away, there's cutting, starting at about 48 minutes, 30 seconds in, between each escapee. To show number 48 hitchhiking without caring which direction he goes in, we see number 2 properly dressed and entered Parliament, the butler reporting to work at Six's home, and number 6 back in his roadster, with the hearse passing him by this time. So the rebels have re-entered society, picking up where they left off. I find it peculiar that we're shown the fate of numbers 48 and 2. I don't know why, but it bothers me and feels significant. Does it matter that the door to Six's home opens like a village door? Does it matter that Six driving his roadster matches the opening credits? Does it matter that we don't get the clanging bars over Six's face at the end again? I suppose if we want to, it must. If I think of Once Upon a Time as the pinnacle of The Prisoner, in its meaning and execution, then Fallout is a sort of rap party for the series. It's the reward after the hard work, which is an odd argument to make seeing as how they were filmed so far apart from each other. Fallout is a little bit drunk, tired, and giving everyone a good hug because they'll never be together again. There probably can't be a satisfactory ending to a show as metaphorical as The Prisoner. It just doesn't have concrete answers. But in a Twin Peaks sense, where we get more pieces to puzzle over, and a feeling that the whole thing has crawled into our brains, yes, it was a very appropriate ending. Taken as a mix of symbolism and metaphors, where we can pick what pieces are meaningful to us personally, I got enough of an understanding to feel satisfied with my personal reading and continually entertain other takes too. It's a show that keeps on giving after it's gone and there's very few programs that can say that. As much as I feel like I grew up with a prisoner, I don't have a concrete memory of my first viewing of the final episode. What I remember more is talking about the series with friends. This is before DVDs and whilst there must have been a VHS set available, no one I knew had it. This was in the very early 90s, and my clique of friends had early internet access. We would spend hours on homebrew message boards dedicated to the show, swapping theories and downloading conflicting FAQs. One thing that I definitely recall from those conversations is the conviction among some fans that there was an alternate cut where the Mars Tribunal didn't shout over Number Six's final speech, and that somehow what he said cleared everything up. Ha! 
I've always had a belief that sometimes there are rare cases when a piece of art is so personal it exists beyond criticism. This isn't to say that we can't criticise it, just that what we have to say can't hurt it. Even though there are shaky technical and storytelling aspects to Fallout, it remains the personal vision of McGowan, who sacrificed a lot professionally as a result. I feel obliged to accept it as it is because of that, focusing on its best aspects and being charitable towards what doesn't work. That said, Fallout assumes the only question we have at the end is who is number one, and ignores other questions we should still have. Who is number six? What is his name, at least? And why did he resign? McGowan is entitled to not tell us these things, but as fans, we still want them. McGowan allying himself with the young hippie feels strange, knowing how stuffy and terse he could be. Sure, he partners with number two as well, but only after outright defeating him. Having the four escaped men get away in a home that is also basically a travelling circus cage is a great visual. A family unit comprised of only men, escaping a conformist regime displayed as an oddity. In looking at the episode and the four escapees, I have to ask, why isn't there a woman involved in any of this? In the whole finale, there doesn't seem to be a single identifiable woman amongst the cast. McGowan's difficult issues with women really seems to hinder how the prisoner examines social constructs, or locks it into a limited frame which undermines the premise. Having the prisoner pick up a gun and shoot people feels like just the last thing number six should ever do. It's like admitting you're out of ideas. I enjoyed getting to share my thoughts with you. Sorry they got away from me at times. Thanks again for the excellent series, and best you both as 2018 ends and into the new year. Yeah, I really like the focus on the four of them in the finale and what that means. Because he's right, it's not just number six who is escaping. They all seem to represent something different. And when they go back to London, three of the four of them at least do seem to fall back into their old patterns. The butler goes into the house to bottle, we presume. Mm -hmm. uh, number two heads back off to the House of Parliament. Number 48 hits the road. So quite what that means number six is going to do if he has gone back to his life. But he's he's resigned, so he's not going to go back to his life. So it's it, it, it creates a strange open ending in that way. I wonder if that's specific to number six. It, it, it emphasises again the fact that maybe he is that little bit more individual, that little bit more unpredictable than everyone else. The fact you don't see his his experiences back in the real world adds an element of uh, confusion to where his story may go. Although ultimately what we do see is him cycling back to the start of the story. So maybe he is destined to exist in this loop. But maybe by doing that, that's what releases characters like number two, number 48 and the butler from this cycle themselves. You know, you know, him going through the process that we see in these 17 episodes of The Prisoner is a cyclical event for him, but it's necessary for helping others break their own personal prisons as well, even though he himself can never escape the one that he has built for himself in the village. I'd also never thought of the trailer as a... A circus trailer before, mm -hmm. but it is, isn't yeah, it? It's yeah. the kind of thing that you would display animals in, or people who were in, you know, traveling, you know, freak shows and things yeah. like that. It's like saying, you know, roll up, roll up, come and have a look at the three numbered rebels who were trying to yeah. escape from the village. Yeah, 
it's a I've never heard of 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 that connection before. That's really good. It does remind me of the opening sequence in is it the Last Crusade when River Phoenix is Indiana Jones? <laughs> yeah, the young Indy. Yeah, and you have all those uh, circus trailers on that uh, train. Yeah, <laughs> so I remember that in the actually I think it was um, a version of the game that was on you know maybe the master system or the mega drive you basically had to run along the top of it and that was it and all and the whole time you were running along all the train cars with all the animals and and it does it does remind me of that yeah i'd never noticed that before and it's fascinating to hear about some of those forums that existed in the Hmm. 90s in the early days of the internet because as he says this is before dvds long before youtube where you could just go online and figure out who was right about something to to have the discussions about the show and I, I find it fascinating that there were people who were sure that there was another cut yeah. a fallout this is making me think of um the mandela effect yeah, yeah. or uh, or what did they call it in the x-files um the mengler effect yes yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh where people become convinced that they have seen something yeah. or that something exists and then all these crazy theories come up about alternate universes and changed timelines because it, you know, people, well, like all those people who think that they saw that, is it Shazam or Kazam? Shazam. Shazam is the one that doesn't exist. Kazam is the one that does exist? Yes. <laughs> yeah, Shazam is the film that people think exists, which features Sinbad as the genie. Yeah. But it doesn't exist. No. <laughs> but everyone's convinced it does because there's a similar film called Kazam, which does have a genie in it, which I think features is it Shaquille O'Neal or it's something. Shaquille O'Neal, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think there must be there must be a lot to be said and written about that era of fan culture. For the prisoner and a lot of other things as well in the nineties, where I wonder how much of those forums still exist somewhere. I mean, I remember using those kind of forums to discuss TV shows when I was at university around that time. And it was strange because in the same way that, you know, we have this podcast where we can talk about the show and broadcast it to people and people who listen can interact with us over social media from across the world. I remember there was that same feeling where and it was it was probably with episodes of The X-Files, I remember, you know, you would watch an episode and you could go online and it could be relatively local, but it could also be um, national or international. The contacts you could make where you were discussing the intricacies of of what was going on and what you felt about things. And it's those conversations which I think um, are a true sign of whether uh, a show really piques people's interest and has the legs to, you know, to carry on. Um, and enter the public consciousness often because I think they're things where they remain underground for a long time where people really pick these things apart um, I suppose they were probably the extension of what would have been the original um, model of having lots of fanzines and meetups which kind of gave way to uh, the internet forum model a little bit as well it's just a chance for people to share their interpretations and I think in a bad way, it could often lead to uh, sort of factions forming, and obviously, which is a thing which does exist in, in fandoms today. But it was a chance to 
talk about things you loved and were interested in and to explain your theories and have a chance to say what you think. And I think this is a you know, clearly a show which is so open to interpretation and one where everyone who watches it will not only experience something else and interpret something else, but they may be seeing something else as well. And I think the minute you have a piece of art that can be interpreted in so many different ways, I think those are the moments when a show transcends being something that people talk about uh, in a in kind of a shallow, superficial way, and where they really start drilling down into the meanings behind what they're seeing, the symbology, the implications, and sort of how that piece of art fits in potentially to um, wider genres or media as well. And I think from our perspective as well, it's probably a show like Twin Peaks that has probably come closest to that uh, in the last 50 years on the scale of how fans engage with what the show is about and continues to do it many, many years, you know, decades after the show originally uh, aired. Give it to me, baby. That's it. Give me the rest. Give all you want to give. That's it. That's it. And take. That's it. Takes all you want. That's it. Take. That's it. Take. 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 And next up is John Roy, who got in touch via Twitter. Welcome to my prisoner take. Take, take, take. (laughs) My first memory of exposure to the prisoner would have been at university in the late 90s. Growing up in the States, there was limited opportunity to see classic British television. Python paid on public broadcasting and Tom Baker's Doctor was a staple as well. But it was a home video release that finally introduced me to number six. In retrospect, The Prisoner fit in well with some of my other favourites from that period of time. Lost Highway, Fire Walk With Me, Soderbergh's Schizopolis, which could all be viewed or rather experienced as a trip. Thanks for the trip, Dad. The great thing for me personally is that along with those other films, The Prisoner has been something that still works on that primordial experiential level, but has also paid off from more sober readings of the text as time has passed. For instance, learning more about McGowan in the subsequent years leads to an obvious yet integral autobiographical interpretation of The Prisoner, which is entirely absent from my first few times through the series. On Fallout, I'd say this isn't the weirdest episode. That title would go to the experimental theatre psychological roller coaster once upon a time, but it may be the most chaotic per capita, and as a personal preference, this is my favourite episode of the show, at least presently. As Bex pointed out, there is a subversive element present, not only in this episode, but within the series as a whole, with Fallout being the epitome of that concept. And that subversion of our expectations makes for a thrilling ride, with the destination unclear and the resolution far from absolute. Who is number one? We found out, kind of. I nominate a doppelganger and a supercomputer. But did this ever really matter? Wait, Crystal Balls? Wizard of Oz? Rosebud? Is six actually one? I never even considered this to be a possibility until maybe my third viewing. Did Six arrange his own capture as a sort of Westworld-esque fidelity test? So then is Six actually a baddie? Are Two and Forty-Eight actually good guys who are brainwashed? Maybe. And wait, Two and Forty-Eight are both dead, or were dead. Is Six dead too? 
Did they kill him when they gassed him? Is this hell or purgatory, or the end of a cycle of reincarnations in which Six finally gets it right? Is 48 the most charismatic figure ever to appear on television? Possibly. He's certainly my favourite. I could watch his banter on a loop forever. Sign me up for that revolution. It's very easy to view the prisoner as McGowan's professional and personal autobiographical allegory. As a creative man, typecast and pigeonholed by his own success. Prisoner to corporate bottom lines and the audience's expectations. Fallout has no clear-cut POV, no reliable narrator. It ends at the beginning, twisting the previous 16 episodes back onto themselves, as it shifts the form into a Mobius strip structure, Hello Lost Highway. With collateral effects of rebirth and reinterpretation as new possibilities emerge, as it beckons to be revisited time and time again 50 years on, with each new insight leading to several more questions, stoking the fire of its own mystery. And maybe something in that is the answer to, why do we care? Be seeing you. Thank you, John. It's a really interesting piece. And I think what really stands out to me is that very little in Fallout actually reveals anything about the questions that we've been waiting for answers to for the duration of the series. And there is so much ambiguity in what we see that rather than potentially trying to explain the prisoner by watching Fallout, it, it's almost like it, it reframes everything we know and sets out a new set of questions. I mean, the fact that we have to now think a little bit more about number six and his motivations and what he was doing there, whether it is as simple as him being the same as number one or whether the nature of that relationship is is more complex than than what we've kind of described so far and i just like the idea that it's you know it picks up on on the importance of maybe showing also how the other characters like number two and number 48 are there as yardsticks to emphasize how unusual and inexplicable number six is and maybe it's that curious nature about him that makes the prisoner as enduring as it is it's the fact that he is hard to get into the mind of and i think it's a it's a remarkable thing to have a show that has a character as complex as that as its central character and in a strange way you end with fallout thinking you maybe understand more about it than you actually do. Yeah, I think it's also interesting to consider how distinct the readings of The Prisoner as a whole can be, depending on whether you know about or indeed give much weight to the autobiographical aspects of it. Because, as he says, you can you can come to the show and watch it without knowing who he was or how involved he was in the show and it can be fascinating to learn that and even after you've learned it you can still separate or at least try and separate how you feel about the show and what you read into it depending on whether you want to look at it from a very personal perspective of McGowan's or whether you want to just take it as a work of art you know death of the author style and say actually I'm going to ignore everything about him and just take this at face value as a work of art and what it means to me. 
I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. So this next piece is from Moya Neal, who got in touch with us via email. I listened to your Fallout podcasts and just had to add my comments. I watched The Prisoner in the original run in the UK in 1967-68 and I loved it at the age of 11-12. I'm not sure I knew exactly what it was about in the last episode, but knew whatever was going on was cyclical, and that P was a prisoner as he was at the beginning. I hadn't watched it for decades until the 50th anniversary. I watched it again and it wowed me. In retrospect, for me I realised it had influenced me at a young age, and that that was a subconscious influence. I have a fairly strong moral code. I don't take things for granted and look beneath the surface of everything to understand what's going on. Authority is something to be challenged wherever necessary. For me, the prisoner's brilliance is the way that it is executed. The editing particularly. The whole project was McGowan's, as far as I'm concerned, who knew exactly what he was doing and knew the technical intricacies of making a film which was to be shown on television. He knew more than a lot of the crew. His film provided information about the world and the way it works. He used the entire show to do this. The speed of the film and the cutting, editing, play their part hugely in its ability to influence the audience, possibly in a subliminal way. His apprenticeship was Danger Man, and his warning messages about the world conveyed through the prisoner. The show ended on a high, with McGowan and Angelo running for that bus. Elation is how I describe it, and that sinister self-closing door. It was also brilliant. It was a completely original genre, illustrating what TV could do, and has not been matched yet. I think focusing on... McGuin's technical abilities alongside everything mm. else is is a really interesting thing to do because you know we, we've talked in the past about how he seemed to be doing almost everything on the show um almost micromanaging everything mm. but I think he probably did know more than a lot of the crew about mm. about what to do it makes me think of um the story that Chris Rodley told about when he interviewed McGuin in the 80s for the Six Into One documentary. And uh, Chris Roddy was there with the, the local crew in California. And at some point during the filming process, McGowan, who was the interviewee, just took over the process yeah. of telling them where to put the camera and, and how to do the shots. And he just instinctively knew what to do and just gradually took control over everything that was happening um, on the technical side as well as effectively taking control of the interview in terms of being so incredibly stubborn hmm. so I, I think he I think he did know so much about every aspect of television and that does all feed through into how brilliant the prisoner became yeah and I like the idea as well that you can view the prisoner as a story that's being told albeit an allegorical one but um, I really like uh, Moya's take on it that this is almost McGowan's mission statement it's him as uh, she says, you know, uh, providing information about the world and the way it works. And I think that's something that resonates a lot with people. The fact that it is McGowan talking about his view on the world as it was, but also it's pressing enough to predict a lot of things that have become resonant with people who have watched the show as well in many different ways and at many, uh, many different depths as well. It's a show which feels like 
at times, although you're watching number six move about in the village and, and get up to these various escapades, you can almost as a viewer sometimes feel like he is providing eyes into the village for you as the audience and you're seeing everything through his eyes and it's that perspective and you either buy into it or you maybe have a distinct feeling about how you read the situation you know as distinct from uh, what number six perceives as well and also going back to what Moya says about uh, McGowan's technical abilities I think it's really important as well that we kind of look at the prisoner as something that was trying to break the convention of what TV could do. I know it's it's something which it often does come up, but I think it's important to emphasize that point that it is it does feel like a, a like a film and actually its aspirations I think are much bigger than than what was considered standard Sunday night fare back in the late 60s. This authority gave me the right to make decisions. My last decision concerned this gentleman here, which could be resolved only in the death of either one or the other of us. And finally, we have a wonderful piece that was sent to us by email from Pete Horgan. I watched The Prisoner for the first time on Channel 4 in the early 90s, and it was on at an unfriendly time, maybe 11pm on a Tuesday, if I remember correctly. As I was watching Fallout, I was thinking, great, we will finally find out who number one is. As soon as I saw the mannequin and heard the Beatles, I thought, okay, this isn't what I was expecting, but okay, I can't wait to see how this will be resolved. And then it continued to get stranger, and then we got the monkey mask, and then I realised that this wasn't going to end satisfactorily. My initial thought at the end was, what the hell have I just watched? Have I just wasted the last 16 weeks? The answer was no. Everything before was fantastic, but the last episode left me confused and annoyed. Why did I not understand it? Had I missed something? Or was this just a psychedelic happening of the time? This was before the internet, so there were no forums or Twitter to go out and try and find answers or discuss the episode with other viewers. It just felt like a surreal cop-out. I still loved the series and bought it years later on DVD and then again on Blu-ray. As sites like The Unmutual popped up, I began scouring for theories about Fallout. The series felt like a crossword where I still hadn't solved the last word. I had read a few theories and tried to create my own, but none of them really worked for me. Then I came across an idea on a blog. I've tested and expanded it with my thoughts, and I think it works. Number six is finally driven to a mental breakdown during Once Upon a Time. He avoids saying six, despite number two's attempts to get him to say it. Does number six think that if he says the word six, it is admitting that he is numbered and he is a prisoner? When he finally says six, number two says no in surprise. He realises that he has pushed number six too far and has broken him. Everything number six has fought against, being a number, being a prisoner, is over. He has capitulated. By saying six, he admits that number six exists. He is the prisoner. Number six then says he is hungry. What would you like? Number six answers, supper? The first number two versus number six encounter was over breakfast. Does supper signify that this is the end of that journey? If everything that follows once upon a time and fallout is a dream of a broken mind, then that makes sense of the craziness that follows. The very next scene after supper is uttered makes no sense. 
Suddenly, number six is in control, and number two is whimpering and drenched in sweat, a complete reversal of the previous scene. There is no explanation of how this reversal occurred. If this is all a dream, then the unmasking of number one being six isn't contradictory. It actually supports it. Number one laughing at number six could be number six realising that he has done this to himself. If only he had shared his information, he wouldn't have had to retreat into the prison of his own mind. The start and end of the episode are unique and also worth discussing. For the first time, there is a recap of a previous episode which includes the bombing scene showing number six avoiding the word six. Then in the closing credits, number two, number 48 and the butler get their actors' names displayed against their faces. This is a first in the series, the reason why is unclear, unless it is there to act as a contrast to what follows. When it shows number six, it doesn't say Patrick McGowan, it says prisoner. Is this a final clue that despite what is on the screen, he hasn't escaped and is still there? Thanks, Pete. That's a really wonderful piece. And actually, Pete's in a sub a slightly longer version that expands upon this theory and it really is a a wonderful take on fallout in that it tries to make sense of the finale as sort of the confused fever dream of a mind that's been broken during the previous episode and ultimately you can look for symbolism and meaning in that last episode but can we really trust anything at all if number six as we see him in Fallout, is completely broken and his mind, in fact, splintered by the events of the previous episode. Yeah, I mean, if you take that reading of it, you can see things like bringing in familiar figures like Schnips becoming the judge and the kid becoming number 48 as somebody bringing in these past experiences, drawing on them and the and then becoming figures in a dreamlike state. The idea that at the end you see them leaving and they're not really leaving, that none of this is really happening, is giving me just really horrible flashbacks to the one time I watched Brazil. <laughs> because that film disturbed me in a way that no other film has ever managed to disturb me before. And I remember it being a brilliant film and I genuinely don't know if I could ever watch it again. But that that idea, coupled with the ending of... I mean, I'm pretty sure that I've only ever watched the director's cut. <laughs> I know that there are other endings to Brazil, but, yeah, that that, that reminds me of, uh, of that film. And Pete's take is a good one to end on because, arguably, it, uh, it turns everything on its head and suggests that Fallout itself is merely a dream. Mm. We're going back into... Twin Peaks territory now, with <laughs> the new Twin Peaks. <laughs> it's, it's something that is open to so many interpretations, and I think that's the genius of Fallout as a finale, in that every single one of these takes works, yeah. and they're all so distinct from each other, and and people's experience of the show is so personal, but you know, as a as an abstract work of art fallout can be so many different things to different people yes and i think anything more definitive in terms of storyline or you know character trajectory would have completely removed that aspect of it and potentially not only undermined 
what the prisoner was about because I think that McGowan was obviously never going to give a definitive ending even though he must have had his own personal interpretation of aspects of it but I really like the idea that you know the life of the show exists largely as a result of an episode that whilst meaning to be the final episode simply opens up everything we've seen before to the subsequent decades of discussions and interpretations by fans all around the world who are watching it for the first time for the hundredth time and coming to it in light of their own personal experiences or indeed having lived with experiences that have been influenced in some way by having watched the show at some point in their lives you So that's it for our episode, The Fallout from Fallout Part 2, featuring all of the comments from our wonderful listeners who have submitted their thoughts on The Prisoner and the finale itself. Yep, huge thank you to everyone who sent in their comments. It was fascinating getting everyone's different takes on The Prisoner and Fallout, and we hope that you've enjoyed listening to them as well. So the tally-ho will be back in the new year, where we'll be continuing our discussions about the world of The Prisoner, Um, We have things planned where we'll be talking about the events after Fallout, uh, looking at some of the media which takes place in the world of the show, but after the events of the original TV series. Uh, We'll also be looking at some of the various aspects of art, music, film, TV, which has been inspired by the show and talking about some of the tangents that we've been meaning to go off on for a while. Yes, because... I haven't had enough tangents lately. Hmm. I need more tangents. (laughs) Uh, And as we mentioned earlier, the tally-ho is also going to continue in a broader sense, looking at some of the other cult TV shows from the similar kind of era as The Prisoner. So that's all coming up in the future. If you want to keep tabs on all the new episodes coming out, you can subscribe on iTunes or via your podcast apps. And you can follow us on Twitter at TFCAA or on the Facebook page Time for Kicks Now. But until next time, from the Tally Ho podcast, be, be seeing, seeing you. you.